The following is a conversation with Massimo Rogatti. Massimo Rogatti is a serial entrepreneur who has had resounding success across numerous industries. However, and unfortunately like many, he has dealt with his own addiction issues. After a near brush with death, he has dedicated the rest of his life to helping others win their addiction battles. Tune in to hear more about his story. So, Massimo, what are some industries that you've gotten a chance to work in? You know, I've been really lucky to work in a lot of everything. Of course, that's also my fault because <laughs> I get bored and then I move on to something else. <laughs> uh, so starting out, I worked in healthcare and then transitioned into banking, uh, internet uh, software development in the early ages of it, then into telecom, association management, entertainment in the Los Angeles area. That was fun. Uh, printing, uh, logistics. And now I spend all of my time on the road speaking and uh, doing my own thing, talking about sober methodology. It's awesome to hear. I think most people tend to follow one passion or one industry their whole lives or different passions within an industry. So it's awesome and really interesting to see that once in a while there's a person who kind of gets bored of one thing and just wants to move on to another. I know um, on another note, I think there's this one chess player, grandmaster level player, who I think was initially a doctor, got bored of it, then he became a lawyer. So uh, you're not the, the only anomaly here for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. But it makes life a lot more interesting and fun. That's for sure. Yep, for sure. Is there a favorite industry that you have that you got a chance to work in or they were all kind of stand out for you? You know, I really enjoyed printing the most. And that may sound interesting in a world of tech, uh, but it brought all of the things that I'm passionate about together. There was the creative aspect. There was marketing. There was some programming as, as time goes on. You know, there's a lot of variable uh, data that goes into printing today that a lot of people are unaware of. And so it just brought everything together. And my uh, dad was in advertising. Yes. So there was some childhood kind of pent up demand to work in and around this uh, kind of creative environment. So I really enjoyed that the most. Got it. Uh, so as a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business people face issues, you know, your story in particular is very interesting because you say that at some point you ended up losing everything. Can you speak a little bit about what that was to you or kind of the moment you knew you lost it all? Yeah. Well, I did a really good job of hiding that I was losing it all as I was losing it all, to be very candid with you. Uh, and so it looked very slow uh, to the outside observer, but it was only because I was holding up a house of cards. So it, it came to kind of a collapse in 2012. I was running the printing company at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I managed to hold on to the outward appearance that I was doing okay for about two more years. And then I lost uh, my home in December of 14 um, and was on the street for the next 15 months. Got it. Would you say that was your lowest point when you were on the street? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and if this was addiction driven. It, it wasn't like I made a bad business error or anything like that. So there was some underlying challenges that led to this over time. I had built myself up in a, you know, over my lifetime, um, fighting bipolar disorder by self-medicating. And in doing that, I just, I basically, I just held up an exterior image that nobody really knew how much I was struggling behind. I had no confidence uh, really to do anything. 
yet I was doing all these things. So they, the world thought one thing, but behind the scenes, I was very fragile. And mm -hmm. uh, you can only hold that up so long. Eventually, you collapse. For sure. You know, 15 months is a really long time. How did you survive that long? I'm on the street without much. Well, I had a few people helping me out. Uh, not very many. Most of my friends and associates kind of abandoned me. Uh, I had a close friend who, who helped me out. And occasionally, my dad would find me on the street. And, um, you know, I still had my car. So, I mean, I was living on the street, but I managed to have a, something over my head, so to speak. But that's still pretty rough. Um, and I also had the uh, correspondence from someone I had met early in 2014, Samantha Thomas, and she lived in Alabama, and she was actually someone who really helped direct me through, and that relationship helped prop me up and, and get me sober again, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Got it. So what specifically would you say Samantha did that really helped you become a little more sober, helped you improve it from the state that you were in? Sure. Well, she asked me a lot of questions. So she would, we wrote letters. Okay. So this is very old school. I mean, if you could imagine such a thing in 2015, mm. we're exchanging letters. Uh, I didn't often have a phone that was working. So this was the one way I could correspond. And she would, she would ask me very candid questions. What are you thinking the moment before you go for a drink? What is actually transpiring inside your head? Uh, and searching within myself to really look at the answer those hard questions and that self-exploratory work that we did over letters is what really kind of laid the foundation got it you know you mentioned this addiction was really part of your downfall and we'll get into your rise a little bit later um, but when did you first realize that you had an addiction issue was it prior to kind of your downfall or in the initial stages when did you first realize it was a big thing to deal with uh, I realized it when it was too late, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> uh, by all means, I was someone who they, you know, would consider to be a high-functioning alcoholic uh, and, and drug addict. I outwardly, a lot of people, after reading my book that came out earlier this year, uh, mentioned to me they had no idea that I was an alcoholic. So I managed to hide it really well over the years. So uh, I realized I had a problem about two years before everything went into collapse mode because mm -hmm. I could not stop. When somebody said, well, can you just not have a drink today? I realized I couldn't. Uh, it just was not something I could physiologically do. I would start to shake uncontrollably. So it, it was a real challenge. Then I mm -hmm. knew I had a problem, but I wasn't ready to deal with it. <laughs> Got it. Did you just not seek outside help or you weren't acknowledging that it was an issue? What was present preventing you from really kind of getting, getting help, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that when you're able to continue to keep up the facade of your life, why would you face the music? Mm -hmm. So until I was, until I knew things were really starting to, to go poorly and that I was going to lose everything, it was quite interesting. About midway through 2014, I knew that I was going to lose everything. It just was a matter of when. I knew I, there was no possible way I could survive. Mm -hmm. And at that point, my driven uh, success in life to that point became driven to fail, believe it or not. I was like, what can I do to fail faster? I started thinking that way, which is really strange. So I was like, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail the best. Mm -hmm. I, and, uh, and so that's what I, I really started doing was I, I uh, 
I didn't seek out help. I didn't want anyone else's help, which was really, in hindsight, it, it looks really strange, but that, that's how I felt at the time. Do you think it's fair that a lot of times, we'll call them high-functioning you know, addicts, if that's a fair term to use, a lot of the times that they're scared to face the music just because they have such a routine and they're able to kind of show face that they were that facing music, you're even trying to fix one small thing may tear down like the structure of the routine. And that's something that they worry about a lot. Does that yeah. really resonate? Absolutely. You nailed it. Because even just admitting one small little thing would open me up to someone knowing that there was that I was challenged. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're up against a very strong outward presentation of who you are and what you represent, um, and at the time leading a company, the last thing I could possibly do is admit and somebody find out, oh, I'm working for a drunk. That wouldn't work. Got it. So how does someone, and I'm sure this is a tough question to answer because they're in PR risks and a lot of corporate stuff to deal with, but how does someone face that intangible fear of really dealing with the internal issues that they have, even if they know dealing with them will help them get better? That's a very, very good question. You have to find what I should have done and what I advise people now to do is you have to find those very trusted advisors and the people that you know are not going to circumvent your, uh, your challenge. They understand the optics of the situation mm-hmm. that you're in because it is a, it's also probably more accepted today, 10 years down the road than it was possibly in 2014. I think mm-hmm. that uh, addiction and the challenges that people faced with it is much more accepted in today's environment than it was a decade ago. In your opinion, do you think that there's a fine line between say, you know, you just got home from work and you want to have a drink with your significant other, you know, call it a glass of wine and someone I want to say compulsively drinking every day during work uh, and really not realizing it as an issue. So I think in summary, is there a fine line between being able to casually enjoy something like that and rec- and knowing it's an issue? Yes, absolutely. Because I would say that's exactly how my story began. <laughs> in the very beginning, it was, I'm just going out after work and I'm having drinks with clients. That, <laughs> that's Let's rewind to like 2001, you know, the early aughts. That was what it was. Every night. On the weekends, I'm taking a client out. We have drinks. I feel pretty good in the morning. It, it wasn't like hangover land, but you know. But as you get older, you start to struggle in, mm-hmm. in, in that. And then uh, in the time that I was in Los Angeles, that became more, oh, well, it's okay to have a drink at lunch. Well, then I was drinking with clients at lunch. I was drinking clients at dinner. So half my day, I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes too much to get up in the morning. I'll just have a mimosa with breakfast and then I drink at lunch and then I drink at dinner. And then, you know, by the time you're done with it, when I came back to the Kansas city area, which is where I was living at the time um, and where this printing company was, is that I was drinking 24 hours a day, more or less. Mm -hmm. I'm not even kidding that I would get up in the middle of the night and I would have a drink. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that's how bad it got. So realistically, it's almost a, it's not almost, you know, you're kind of casually enjoying something and then it's an issue. It's almost like a slippery slope, you would say, in the sense that, you know, having a casual drink or two with clients a few nights a week probably isn't the worst thing. But then when you notice it or actively notice it coming in, oh, I'm having it during the middle of the day or, oh, I don't want to wake up. I'm going to have like a shot to, to wake me up. When you notice that slippery slope, that's when, you know, it'd be a really good time for someone to be like, wait, this could be the onset of something. Maybe it's time I go try to get some help. Yeah, absolutely. When it slips from being just a casual on occasion to 
you wake up and you realize that you're drinking every day of the week and half the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I probably could have arrested it sometime much earlier had I recognized, but you you've, you can kind of fail to recognize that, um, especially if you're able to function. Mm-hmm. And with many people, there wasn't anyone on the outside saying, you're drinking too much. Nobody said anything to me because it wasn't noticed enough that anyone said, hey, this guy can't function. What's going on with you? You know, nobody mm-hmm. pulled me aside. So when you're able to continue doing it, mm-hmm. it makes it a lot easier to end up in a really bad situation fast. Do you think that there is such a thing as a day-to-day for kind of a drug addict or an addict in general or every day looks different? I think that it's, it, I think it's very similar. And, mm-hmm. and talking with a lot of people over the last few years, really your life becomes centered around the drinking. And that's when I, or, or, the, or the drugs, or both. Uh, and that's really where I ended up. I would say I was in a very big routine. Even when I was on the street, that routine continued. Where's my next drink coming from? Uh, and that's where I was in the last year of my work life when I still had a home. It was, when am I going to have my next drink? Can I travel from here to here and survive without having a drink while I'm driving? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, these are the types of things that you do. And so you're spending all of your time thinking, how long can I go before I have my next fix? Mm-hmm. It consumes you. Got it. So say, for example, if someone's just starting to notice that slippery slope, let's say, you know, having drinks with clients to having, you know, a drink or two at lunch, uh, when that when there's that onset of addiction, is there anything that practical that you think people could do to really catch themselves and prevent themselves from going down that that slide of the slippery slope? Yes, I do. I think there are some people that are just naturally have addictive personalities. I believe I'm one of those people, but Mm -hmm. there are people that don't really naturally have these personalities. And what I've found is that it is recognizing that they don't need to be part of the group that is doing whatever. And that Mm -hmm. lies back into this confidence belief that I very strongly believe is that confidence is the root, uh, you know, or lack thereof is the root cause of most people that face addiction challenges. If you don't have the confidence to be out in a group at lunch and everybody's having, you know, a gin and tonic and you have a water and you feel somewhat out of place or uncomfortable in those situations, then really it needs to be you take a hard look at yourself and what makes me unconfident in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's what I talk about in my program is that, you know, how do we find that confidence so that you can attend an event and not have a drink? What, why is this drink necessary for you to participate? Got it. So it's really almost building up that intangible feeling of it sounds or people may think it's a lot more complicated than it is, but just really telling yourself, I, this isn't something I have to do. And if I just do that, then I should be getting better. Correct. Correct. It, it, it's very simple when you break it down. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny, you know. I don't, so I don't knock on wood, but personally, uh, been fortunate enough, haven't had any uh, issues with uh, kind of substances or this kind of stuff. But in the past, something that I've struggled with that I think probably a lot of people struggle with is kind of focusing away from social media because these apps are almost programmed to to keep us focused. And uh, if there's something that I noticed, and I'm definitely not perfect at it, but the more I thought about how to get off of it or just kind of how to have a hard stop on social media, the harder it was until I was, I told myself, I just have to not do it. Like it's not, it's not that complicated. You just, just put the phone down. Like (laughs) you don't think about it. You just, you just do that. So it's an interesting parallel there for sure. 
it, you bring up a very good point though. And I actually, I, I, I put a late chapter in my new book that came out last week, uh, sober method. And in that I talk about device addiction because specifically I had a reader from my last book reach out and say, Hey, I used your program to get off my device. So I was like, what? This was about addiction for drugs and alcohol and you used it to get off a phone. So I inquired further and I started realizing that this is something that lays back into some of the same principles of, of actual substance addiction. There's some, there's a confidence underlie in here, the, uh, especially FOMO. Everybody has this fear of missing out. Uh, yeah. And, and it doesn't matter how old you are. I, I, I've worked with somebody in their eighties that was challenged by not being able to put their device down. If you can imagine such a thing, but it does exist. And one of the biggest things that I am, I recommend right off the bat, turn off your notifications. Yeah. I mean, that, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, is that you can set your phone to grayscale. Your phone is not very exciting when you have to look at it in black and white. Let me tell you. Got it. So there are some practical tips for people who have kind of a digital addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Got that's it. those, those will get you started. Got it. I'll have to, I'll have to take note of that and maybe practice that in my own life as uh, you know, we all have areas to improve in. Uh, another interesting note, do you think that people who say have struggled with substances in the past, you know, being alcohol, for example, do you think that after the recovery, they're able to still casually enjoy that? Or whenever they see, you know, a substance that they know they had struggle with, they get some sort of PTSD from it? I think that varies by person. Mm -hmm. However, I, I strongly caution anyone to go down that road again. And, and the reason I do is there's a lot of temptation and built up. Um, it's almost like muscle memory. You know, mm -hmm. you've done it so often. It's a very slippery slope to to go back again and engage in that behavior. I've seen people do it, but they're generally not the people who went all the way to the mat like I did. They're mm -hmm. people who struggled a little bit, but, you know, straighten themselves up. Uh, it's just better to redirect that energy, I think, uh, overall. And your overall health will thank you as well. I mean, drinking alcohol on a regular basis or doing you know, yeah. some drugs here and there is probably not good for your overall lifestyle. Got it. From the people that are able to, you know, successfully live happily lives recovering from past addiction versus those that go into relapse, do you think that there's any big difference between those two groups of people as in why is one able to be successful and the other isn't? Yes, absolutely. I, I, it's very strongly based on finding that initial point of pain. So I... I actually died in August of, of 2015. I was gone for over six minutes. Wow. I mean, they could, they could have quit working on me. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. lucky they decided to continue to, you know, put the paddles on my chest and mm -hmm. smack my chest around a few times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I can make fun of it now, but I mean, it, it, uh, at the time that's kind of scary. But three weeks later, and after spending two weeks in the hospital and, and recovering from this, uh, from having seizures from detox, I was drinking again. Mm -hmm. And then I went to rehab in October of 15. And it, it finally, I finally found that source of my true pain. And that's when I, which was abandonment. And, and so a uh, fear of abandonment. And in doing so, I recognized that every single thing that I fear I had and every bit of lack of confidence I had, I could trace back to this one feeling. And as I've worked with others over the past five, six years, I have recognized the same thing. I've been able to take 
everyone I've worked with back to a singular thing that they have a fear over. And once they tackle and approach mm -hmm. that fear, they no longer find themselves into this constant state of relapse. The, the relapse prevention actually is finding that one thing. Got it. Interesting. So really honing in that one thing you fear and once you're kind of able to tackle your internal demons, much less likelihood that it relapses again. Yep, absolutely. That's uh, a tough so struggle, I... though. You got to go. I mean, you really got to dig deep within yourself and be afraid to answer hard questions. And a lot of people are afraid to open their head and, and look inside. I mean, yep. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was. Um, but after I did it, I thought, oh, this will be easy. I just tell people to do this and they'll do it. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's a slow road. I think it goes back to one of the points that you brought up before where what's necessary in these situations is to really introspect. And I think a lot of times people are scared to take that initial pause because they're like, oh, my routine, well, I'm not feeling great. I don't want to, I don't want to mess up the routine. If, if the routine gets messed up, it's only going to get worse. And somehow, some way that fear has been conditioned into us, which I have a whole nother theory on that. Um, but it's almost like unconditioning that fear and really uh, trying to get better for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's very well put. That's a good idea and good thought. Uh, the one thing I have to ask, I feel like uh, when you were you know dead for six minutes, calling it when when you say dead, like without a pulse, right? Yeah, without a pulse for six minutes. Yeah, I had a near death experience. It was pretty pretty intense. Did you see anything or feel anything or anything divine, or it was just kind of like going in and under? No, I, actually, it was a pretty divine experience, and I write about it in my first book. It, and and so there was an unknown person that uh, showed up in my room before I actually went under, um, and and actually went without a pulse. Mm -hmm. And um, very plain person. The nurse told me that it was a friend of mine who had come to the hospital and asked what room I was in. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was Mary, which has some certain you know obvious undertones there mm -hmm. and um and she looked like a nun to me to be honest i mean she was very plainly dressed uh when i did uh, you know lose my pulse and flatline i did exit my body i saw it was all white i can tell you that and it was just the most amazing feeling of warmth and love is it's just the way mm -hmm. that i would describe it and my maternal grandfather was the voice I heard. Mm -hmm. And uh, making a long story short, uh, and because it wasn't like we exchanged a long exchange here, but he told me I had a choice. And if I wanted to live, and he thought that, that I had things left to do in this world, all I had to do was turn around to my right. Mm -hmm. And he, he said he'd be there when I got back. And I asked him if, if he'd be there. And he said, yeah, I'll be here. And I turned around and I was like slammed back into my body. It was, it was an incredible experience. Well, do you think that, you know, I mean, thankfully you survived, so that's great. But that, that happening, you know, last time I checked, well, at some point going to leave this earth. Uh, do you think that you have less fear of the end because you went through that experience? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you asked that question because just a couple of days ago, somebody said something to me mm -hmm. and I said, they're like, how are you able to do what you're doing right now? Aren't you scared? Aren't you? I said, are you kidding me? I already know what's on the other side and it's great. So, I mean, if whatever happens, happens. And, uh, and, and you, you take a very different approach to life when you realize that one, it's short and you don't have much time on this, this earth. 
I, I could go here while we're having this chat right now. I hope I don't, but if I do, mm -hmm. eh, I've lived a good life, right? <laughs> so uh, it definitely changes your mindset overall. And I, I have a much, I'm much more calm than I was before that experience. The other thing that has really changed about me is that I feel emotions at such a deeper level than I did before is the only way that I can describe it. I, I don't like it, but occasionally, you know, I'll see something that is just heartwarming and I'll just start tearing up and I won't like, like start crying, but like, I will literally start tears falling down my face in joy of like, oh, that is such a beautiful thing. And it is weird and it's, it's hard to fight, but I just, I have feelings like that now that I never had before. So it's almost in a way, as messed up as this sounds, you were kind of grateful for that, I don't want to say midlife, but kind of mid-death experience where yeah. you went under and when you woke up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. It, it gave me a new, it, it reframed everything that has come after. You know, on another note, and unfortunately on a more somber note, Samantha, who helped you out with a lot of this addiction, mm -hmm. uh, she ended up passing away due to kind of a reckless drunk driver uh, how were you able to put up with yes. that or kind of deal with that? Because from an outside perspective, it seems like the average person in your case, in your scenario would really fall back in to kind of, you know, depression or coping with that uh, with substances. But how are you able to kind of deal with that and then move forward and still maintain a healthy lifestyle? I'll tell you what, it hurt like a ton of bricks as, as uh, I mean, it really, it really hurt. But I was reminded by one thing almost immediately is that she said that I had to share my story and that I had to get out there and, and help others. And so that's, I mean, almost immediately I started writing uh, my book, my first book. And, and then earlier this year, when I got the opportunity to testify at the sentencing of her murder trial, mm -hmm. um, that really hit home and, and, and coming back from that, from that hearing i really that it just like came like a bolt of lightning as i was uh i was driving that um this is what i'm going to do the rest of my life i'm going to help others you know with their sobriety but she she was a life force i mean i wouldn't be where i am today without her without a doubt got it it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you can take something as dark and depressing and really bring light out of it so i definitely commend you with that uh, another area that you probably have a lot of expertise in is misconceptions about addiction. So what do you think are the most, mis what do you think are the most uh, kind of compelling misconceptions that people have about just addiction and substance abuse? Well, a lot of people aren't going to like this one and it's controversial when I say it, but I believe that you don't need to go around the rest of your life saying, hi, I'm Massimo and I'm an alcoholic. Because once you have mm -hmm. reached a point, you have to put it behind you, and I, I think that that uh, I think that that's a really important thing. Because you can't, on one hand, say that you're 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 powerless to your addiction, and on and on the other hand, you have to not have the addiction. I mean, they don't go hand in hand in my eye, in my in my mind. They they just don't. Mm -hmm. And so I always encourage people to say that don't enter self introduce yourself as what you once were. You are now greater than that. Um, but as mm -hmm. for misconceptions, I, I, I really think that it's, uh, it's a lot easier to hide uh, things. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. So I was uh, working in the job uh, that I got after I, I left the streets. 
and one of my employees passed away mm-hmm. and she was 35 years old and I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, well, what did she die of? And then I find out from some of the other co her other coworkers are like, oh, well, you know, she drinks on the line every day. She's, you know, that, that Yeti she has, it's like straight vodka. I'm like, what? I find out that she was a, an alcoholic functioning alcoholic that died of alcoholism. I basically, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it was mind blowing to me. And here I was, someone who should have seen it and that's when i really realized that people suffer in in front of us a lot and mm-hmm. and we fail to see it and and so that i think that that's a large misconception oh i would know that they were drinking mm-hmm. so really i think the big two takeaways there is one if you're kind of recovering to try to distance yourself from that identity as much as you can but finding the right points to be vulnerable and the other thing and they never assume you really know about someone's background. And if you can, or if you see something that looks looks a little cautious, reach out to them in private, in good faith, and really trying to help them out. Yep, absolutely. What would you say the biggest challenges are? Uh, I think we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but a little more specifically, kind of the bigger challenges staying sober, especially in the digital age, where uh, we have this rush of dopamine, and you know these apps are programmed to make us addicted, and with you know, one kind of addiction leads to another kind of addiction. So in short, how would you go about uh, staying sober in this day and age? Absolutely. So my my method is called the sober method, which is stoic, observe, behavior, execute, and restore. And the foundation mm-hmm. of this is stoicism. A lot of people are familiar with stoicism. A lot of people just know it that it's a word <laughs> that they hear from time to time. But the biggest, you know, foundational piece of of being a stoic is reflecting upon yourself and taking that time and quietness with yourself to think about things that are going on. And the biggest thing mm-hmm. that, that that anyone can do is take some quiet time for yourself every day. Take 15 minutes, put your phone in the other room on, do not disturb. Whatever it is will wait. And really just stop and think about what's going on in your life. What am I doing? Am I, am I headed in the right direction? What could I do better? Um, those are just simple reflections, but if you really want to take deeper dive, you know, you could pick up, uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations and, and read a verse every day and really think about what he said and, and how that impacts your life. And that would be a very good starting point to just kind of reconnect yourself with, with nature and disconnect as much as you can from devices. Got it. So to try to really connect with what you have around you instead of correct, connect what you have, you know, directly in front of you being at a device. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I know everybody that is watching this is definitely can say they've seen it in the last week. You go mm-hmm. out, you see a couple, and they both have their phones in their hands and they're having a meal together. Or are they? Someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great date. I want to go on another one of those. Uh, it, it, and you see married couples do it as well. I don't think that that is a good foundation for any. You see friends do it. I mean, you see a lot of people do it. Connect with the people that are next to you. I mean, loneliness is one of the biggest impacts that leads to these addiction problems because we want to find some way to feel good about ourselves. And so we lean into addiction because it's easy. It's easy to have a drink. It's easy to do drugs. Uh, So when you have the opportunity to be side by side with another human being, engage Mm. with them because the release of dopamine that you get in having a good friend and a great conversation with them 
far exceeds what you get by having a drink alone by yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's a much more sustained level of dopamine and something probably much healthier to do than just having a drink. Correct. And it's interesting. I'm not, I'm not a doctor and I, you know, but I can tell you from all the studies I've read, the release of the dopamine and the serotonin that happens after you are with somebody physically and you speak with them, it mm -hmm. lasts two to three times longer than the effects of, of doing a drug, which mm -hmm. is really kind cool. of amazing. So there's a, a lasting effect because you, you think back to the time that you just spent with the individual. So that, that keeps the dopamine flowing. Got it. It's a really interesting fact. And you mentioned your sober methodology. Can you touch upon the other aspects of it? Kind of the, the OBER, I believe? Yes, yes, absolutely. So it works in a continuous improvement cycle. So you start with the stoicism. And as you walk away with one of the stoic items that you've just looked at, you journal this and how it impacts your life. And then you observe. So you stand back and you look at how this actually is, how you're reacting to this one particular thing in your life. And you start to frame up, well, how could I correct that? And once you frame that up, we move into the behavior, which is the B. And you're at this point testing this new behavior based on your observation. So you saw that yourself every time that you went out with friends, and they had a drink, I had a drink. Well, why was I doing that? Well, I'm going to adjust the behavior now, so I'm not going to have a drink. I'm going to get an iced tea, for example. Mm -hmm. So then you, you play out this behavior, you see how things work, and you're moving now into the execution mode uh, in E, where you're actually journaling what happened when you did a test of this behavior that you've modified. Mm -hmm. So there's actual measurement. And, you know, sometimes you'll do, uh, you'll slip up. And the program's not about the challenges of, you know, slipping up and shaming you for that. It's just, okay, let's go back and observe what happened. Let's alter the behavior a little bit. Let's try to execute it again. And so as you're moving through that process, you feel good about this behavior. Okay, I'm going to move on. You get to the R and the, the, rest, uh, the restore section here. And that's where you get to the traditional forgiveness and uh, moving on. So how did this particular behavior just change impact somebody in your past? Mm -hmm. And can you go find and, and, and grant or get forgiveness, whichever way it flows in this particular way? Uh, and as you do that, yeah, and then you move on, you go back and you, you find another uh, item that you want to work on and you keep going through the process until you slowly improve yourself. The program is not focused about being abstinent out of the gate, mm -hmm. which is one of those large challenges on so many of the other 12-step programs out there. It's like, oh, you can't drink. I, I find that that's very tough for a lot of people to just, oh, I'm going to quit smoking. Cold mm -hmm. turkey? Yeah, you're not going to do it. But you might be able to, to wean yourself off easily. So the real focus here is being able to do it without sending yourself to rehab, or it, it works a lot better for people who maybe aren't struggling with full-on addiction, but are starting to slip a little bit. And so it's a very tailored program to yourself. That's, that's why I think it's a very powerful way to, to work on addiction. I think that you made a great point there. And oftentimes, I think depending on what the addiction is, there's a different approach. So kind of as you mentioned earlier, if you're looking at your phone, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but respectfully, I think it's a pretty simple fix to put it down. But with substances, as someone is conditioned over time, uh, can definitely become more difficult. So uh, I definitely commend you on that. And I think it's a great perspective to say that with a lot of these addiction issues or a lot of these substances, a lot of times it's not going to be an initial, you know, it might go from 
eight drinks to four drinks a week or mm -hmm. kind of then eight drinks to three. So really a progressive fix up and then just confidence that you can keep going. And I also agree with you that that's not something that you can just hit a switch and automatically fix, but something you have to build steps to. So definitely a great process there and encourage uh, anyone who's listening and struggling with that to check that out. Uh, another really interesting point, uh, I can't think of anyone specific off the top of my head, but a lot of times you have these former drug addicts or people who really struggle with substances who end up recovering, become titans of business, titans of industry, really successful people. Do you think that there's a reason why they're able to make the jump from one end of the line to the other? No, I, I absolutely. Because I think that there's an incredible amount of strength that you, you build when you go all the way to the mat. Mm -hmm. uh, by any arguable sense, I was successful before I collapsed. And the rarity, I think, in a lot of cases is being able to stand back up and, and rise again beyond some like menial level. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember something that my dad told me a, a few years after I had been sober. He said, I, I'm just so proud of you because I never thought you'd rise above being a Walmart greeter. <laughs> I was like, wow. I mean, that hurt. And at the same time, it, it gave me some perspective that the hope was that oh, I would just be sober. There, there was not any like great hope that I would be able to do something with it. But back to your question, it's this building of it, it's the building of that confidence that you overcame something that was so much greater than yourself that allows you some incredible focus to achieve anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm I look at what I'm doing at this moment, which is kind of out there in a sense. I'm out trying to change the way people look at getting sober, and I'm up against a uh, hundred mm -hmm. years of AA. And that's not to say that AA isn't great. However, I think that my program is better and it works better in a day and age when you want to see progress over time that's measurable is a lot easier for people to swallow than it is to go cold turkey and, and, and keep, keep it going. Yeah, I think that's a lot. And you're improving yourself in a way that is conceptually different. Got it. I think it's a, definitely a really fair point to make. Uh, Massimo, if you could have dinner with anyone else in history, uh, who would it be and why? Michelangelo. Uh, is there um, a reason Michelangelo? Well, he was he was brilliant in so many areas that I I just think it would be fascinating to to dig into his mind just for a couple of hours, just to understand how and why he tied so many different things together the way that he did. I mean, it just had to be an incredibly beautiful mind and it would be really, really interesting to speak with. For sure. I think it would be interesting to speak with, uh, like you said, historical figures that didn't have to deal with a lot of this digital age stuff and they could really just focus on, you know, building and making great things instead of, not to say that people don't build or make great things, but stuff a little more tangible or kind of something a little more raw arty. So I definitely think could be for sure an interesting conversation. Uh, say, for example, after your life, you know, there's an actor or, you know, a director that comes across your story and wants to make a movie out of it. Is there anyone that you would love to play, uh, play you in your life movie as an actor? It's kind of funny that you ask that question. So a, a lot of times people have told me over the years that I, I look and sound like Tom Hanks, but Tom Hanks is too old to play <laughs> me. So, so I, uh, 
I I don't know who I would really uh, want to play me, but that would that would be interesting if Tom Hanks would do it. <laughs> Got it. We'll have to we'll have to find out one day for sure. I mean, maybe maybe your life will be made into a movie, so uh, one day one day we'll have the answer to that. Well, it's certainly exciting enough. It could be made into a movie. I think there's a lot of ups and downs, and and it even touches the movie industry. So maybe somebody would be interested. Yeah, for sure. Uh, is there other than yours? Do you have a favorite book that you've read that you know just generally brought you happiness, or you know can speak to addiction therapy or helped you out through that time? I really enjoy uh, Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules of Life. Um, it's it's. Uh, mm-hmm. It's definitely a, a good read. To, it, it makes you explore and think about things that that I think are important to reflect upon. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a it's a fun book. I mean, if if you want a little philosophy, yeah, Jordan Jordan Peterson's a cool dude. Definitely a, a big fan of his. What would you say brings you the most happiness in life? Hmm. Boy. It's, I think it's definitely helping others. It really is. There's a mm-hmm. certain, there's a look that people give you that I can't quite describe, but you know it when you see it, when you realize that you've touched their life in a profound way that they'll never be the same. And I mm-hmm. live for that look now. Um, and if you'd asked me this question a decade ago, I would have said money. So that tells you just how <laughs> changed I've become. Got it. It's a fair point. I think it's it's interesting that when people get to that resourceful or really wealthy part of their lives, you know, they realize that they get more happiness or objectively maybe that dopamine rush from kind of doing things other than purely uh, making profits. So interesting to see that development over time. But Simo, you've had an incredible life journey with definitely its ups and downs and hopefully only ups in the future. Is there anything else you want to share, whether it's business advice, life advice, relationship advice, addiction advice? Uh, final word is yours. I think the most important thing that anyone can do with their life is believe in themselves and that anything is truly possible if you just get up and do it. Make it happen. Masima, that's a beautiful final word, and thanks so much for taking the time to go on the show. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Massimo Rigotti. If you enjoyed the episode... Rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.